Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. If you have your Bibles or uh, uh, turn to uh, scriptures, uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 8. This is an interesting passage, and as I've mentioned before, uh, when I fill the pulpit, I get to preach on stuff I want to preach on. And this passage is intriguing in a lot of different ways. Um, It's one of these passages that I look at and go, what do you do with that? And uh, the healing is unique in how Jesus heals this uh, blind guy and, uh, and then his interaction with the disciples all tied together. So let's look at this. Hear the word of God from Mark chapter 8, beginning verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of Pharisees and and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? And why... Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. They said to them, he said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he'd spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Our God, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds and even open our eyes and ears that we might see, that we might hear, that you might grow us in grace. We marvel at your goodness and kindness to us, and we pray that you would encourage us with your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So these disciples, uh, they always puzzle me, but the, the, the interesting thing here is Mark attaches this healing episode that none of the other gospel writers mention. Uh, one commentator suggests, and I think he's right, that coupled with Jesus' rebuke, uh, this is a visual rebuke of the unseeing eyes of the disciples. And it's fascinating to me because the disciples, you would think if anyone would get it, they would get it. But they have ears that don't hear and eyes that don't see. And I've lived long enough now that as I reflect back, particularly in my pastoral ministry, I think of the many things and many positions and many beliefs that I've held over the years that I was so certain of, so confident in. 
Ironically, and perhaps this is God's sense of humor, I remember thinking very clearly and picked on my wife who was raised Presbyterian, I didn't think it was possible to be a real Christian and a Presbyterian. And this infant baptism stuff, doesn't the Bible say believe and be baptized? And now here I am, an ordained Presbyterian minister for some 30-odd years. I saw the scriptures clearly. I knew. What's worse is it doesn't take much thinking, and all of us have regrets. But I remember a church planter came into my office when I was over at Providence. We had just finished building, well, several, a year or two earlier, we built this beautiful building in this growing neighborhood, and the church was growing pretty rapidly. A brand new building, all those kind of things in a suburban context. And this church planter uh, was struggling just to gather people, get some momentum, and I knew what I was doing. Look at the church. Look at the people coming in. I've got it together. I've got it figured out. Totally oblivious to the pain, the struggle, and the agony. And so we were talking, and I just kind of ran by it all, and he left and then came back into my office, and Drew said to me, you missed the hurt. You missed the struggle. And I think back about that, and uh, Drew Dareth, of course, you know, we've been good friends for all these years, but in my confidence and certitude and blindness, I had eyes, but I didn't see, and ears that we didn't hear. There's regrets that I guess we could run through and look back, and I remember recounting one of this to a friend of mine, and I was told, you need to learn to forgive yourself. And I thought, well, what does that mean? But what's encouraged me is these disciples. These disciples encourage me. And they give me hope as one who has eyes that don't see as clearly as I would like them to see. They give hope to those who think they see and really renewal for those that know they don't. Let's look at this a little closer. I want to look at two aspects of this and then draw some implications. Uh, but the first piece that I think is so ironic in this text, and you probably picked it up, um, the disciples' blindness just seems so obvious and bordering on the absurd. They're focused on the fact that they're getting into the boat uh, Jesus had just had an encounter with the Pharisees, another one of his encounters. They get into the boat, and they're all concerned because they only have one loaf. They only have one loaf. They forgot to bring the bread. And then when Jesus warns them of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, they immediately kind of respond in the defensive and go, oh, no. He's rebuking us for not for forgetting the bread. They hear Jesus' warning as a rebuke. Their blindness is absurd. In fact, just 10 verses earlier, we're reading about the feeding of the 4,000. They brought just one loaf for 13, and yet in their minds, it wasn't sufficient to feed the 13. Five loaves and a couple of fish are sufficient to feed well over 5,000 with a lot of leftovers. Seven loaves feed 4,000 with leftovers. But their blindness was such that the one loaf, do you notice how they refer to that one loaf? No bread. No bread. We have no bread. 
Not we have one loaf and we can kind of squeeze some crumbs for everybody, but we have no bread. It's absurd. But the tragedy of this blindness is that they didn't see Jesus. They didn't see Jesus. Have they forgotten? You know, the gospel accounts are such that uh, gospel writers aren't necessarily putting things in chronological order. So perhaps the feeding of the 4,000 isn't simply 10 to 15 verses preceding this. Maybe it's a, a greater amount of time. It could be. But you notice when Jesus asks them, hey, wait a minute, remember? Remember what I did? They immediately knew what he did and how many baskets of leftovers were picked up. So they knew but they are utterly blind. They never even consider Jesus as a solution to their problem. So fixed on the bread. And what's interesting, and this may be a stretch, so work with me a bit, but I think it makes sense. You see this growing, at least in Mark's gospel, this growing preoccupation with the bread. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, um, and this, it all comes to a point, and Jesus and the disciples are concerned with the crowd. Jesus says, okay, uh, go get some bread. And uh, they ask him, how much do you have? They said, have no idea. We need to go see. So you have to go see how much bread they have. When they feed the 4,000, they knew immediately how much bread they had when Jesus asked. But now here, they're so consumed with the one loaf, it's nothing. It's utterly nothing. Utterly nothing. How blind can they be? In their preoccupation with their own failure, their resources are inadequate. Jesus is irrelevant. Their comfort and assurance was in that one loaf of bread, which was nothing. Nothing. It was not in the one who promised that he'd be with them. It was not with the one who turned those few loaves to feed thousands. They totally missed the connection. It was the bread that utterly blinded them to the presence of Jesus. It just seems ironic. It blinded them to the power, to his message. Jesus, as I mentioned, not even considered as a potential answer. We have no bread. We have no bread. How blind can they be? See why this makes me feel better? I've done a lot of things that are, you know, it's, we think back, just dumb, held some weird positions, hurt people, meaning well. We all have. When we look at these disciples and we see where they are, it makes me feel so much better. And their fixation on the bread blinds them to the presence and peace of Jesus. And it does us too. And it's such a good challenge I get so fixated on the checkbook that a little money's no money. And Jesus' presence, his comfort, his promises are irrelevant. And it's ironic that what Jesus can and sometimes does provide blinds us to peace, power, and comfort that his presence does and insists on providing. In my theology, this side of the cross tells me that Jesus isn't simply in the boat with me but he dwells within me by his spirit. Augustine says that Jesus is more intimate with me, with you now, than I am with myself. He knows us deeply. He knows us intimately, and he's with us. 
and he's with us. But we're blinded by the bread. We have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. But there's hope. The disciples give us hope, which we'll get to. We'll connect the dots in a minute. But there's hope also for those that are blinded by the yeast, if you will, whose eyesight is distorted by the leavening effects of the teachings of the Pharisees and of Herod. Jesus' warning about the yeast and the leavening effect, the influence, the small, seemingly small and insignificant is indeed significant. And the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herod that he refers to, just after that exchange in verse 14, he talks in, in other passages we learn that the yeast of the Pharisees, the sin of the Pharisees was their hypocrisy. Standing in the marketplace to be seen, praying, seeking seats of honor, making a display of fasting, making a clear demonstration of their generosity and giving, but then saying, no, no, this stuff, Corbin, no, I can't give that. I'd love to help you out, but this is for mom and dad. It was all about the show. And Herod, making decisions based on what will keep him in control in a position of power, maintaining influence. It's that subtlety, that subtle pursuit of power position and control. And that's what he's warning them about. And then the irony and the way that it's put together in Mark's account is fascinating because you see that a disciple's vision distorted by that leavening effect of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. The leavening effect of the pursuit of power, position, and control. You know, this last section of Mark, this last teaching section before he goes into Jerusalem uh, is bracketed by two giving of sight stories, the one we're looking at here and then in, again in Mark 10. And in that section, there, there are three sections and there are three times that Jesus predicts his arrest, uh, his crucifixion, resurrection. And all three times, the disciples respond in a way that shows the impact of the leavening effect of the Pharisees and Herod, of their desire for power, position, and control. Peter gets it right, recognizes Jesus as Messiah, that great confession that he makes. But then what, how does he respond when Jesus talks about his arrest, his crucifixion, his betrayal? No, Lord. Peter's agenda his control. That's not the way the Messiah works, Jesus. Here's the agenda. Thinking politically, as many, of course, at the time were. And then the second time, the disciples are on their way and our argument breaks out. You know what it's about? Who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? Who has the power? Mark chapter 9. And then there's James and John. They, saw, they got Jesus' royalty. They said, listen, when you come into your throne, when you come into your power, hey, give me a seat at the right and give him a seat at the left. Power, position, and control. And really, it doesn't get much better. You know the story of the disciples. They continue to be marked by hypocrisy, betrayal, unbelief, and desertion. It's the women who remain faithful, which in that context, a patriarchal context, would be a rebuke. Paul has a fight with John Mark. Peter needs to be rebuked for his hypocrisy himself. There's hope. 
for people like you and me, like these disciples. There's hope. What does Jesus do with these nut job disciples? What does he do with these disciples that just don't get it and continue to struggle? They're the foundation on which he builds the church. They're the foundation upon which he builds the church on misfits, on people who are ne'er-do-wells, who don't get it when they should, who have eyes that don't see, ears that don't, see, that don't hear. Vision impaired, but they think they see. Blinded by the bread, eyes dulled by the leavening impact of the desire for power, position, and control. And then when I look at my mess, or perhaps you look at yours, in many ways it pales by comparison. And if Jesus' grace is such that he can forgive, restore, and build up these disciples in such a way that they establish the church, there's hope for you and me, whose eyes don't see clearly, whose ears don't hear clearly. And frankly, the church has struggled down through the years, as we all know. We're blinded by the bread. Our seeing eyes are easily taken in from the leaven of, of power, position, and control. And it's probably good for us as Christians to remember the history of the church, which is marked by men and women, though mostly men who had eyes but were blind, who thought they saw, had ears, and were deaf, who succumbed too easily to the allure of power, position, and control. And it's funny, I like to try to distance myself from some of the ugliness of the church, the church's history, but that's my history. That's your history. The leavening impact of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod has distorted our vision, so we think the, the kingdom is being ushered in by political power. We tend to wrap the cross in the American flag. We get those things confused. We're utterly deaf to Jesus' call to the way of the cross and finding power and position and weakness. We miss the prominence of the poor and the marginalized and the struggling. So this passage challenges me. It gives me hope because when I'm exposed to my mess, which I can see by the grace of God and through the hope of the cross, that I can own my mess, the mess of me personally and the mess of the church. Owning means not hiding, rationalizing, or putting a sterilizing spin on, which I'm so often tempted to do. We see some of the things that happen in the name of the church and in the name of Christ, and we want to distance ourselves. We want to say, well, that surely wasn't us, but it is. See, the gospel record, what encourages me is the authors of this gospel record are the very ones who messed up, are the very ones whose eyes didn't see, whose ears didn't hear, who had been taken in and seduced by the desire for power, position, and control. There's no spin. The disciples, Mark, doesn't try to color things so that he looks a little bit better. It's out there. No hiding, no rationalizing. They put it in writing. We need to own our mess, personally and corporately. That's what I taught. That's what I said. That's who I hurt. And the gospel allows us to face that. The beauty of knowing that our sins have been forgiven. Our blind eyes, our deaf ears have been forgiven. 
while there's a lot of complications in figuring out what restitution and restoration looks like, in the meantime, we own it and recognize it and rest in the promise of the gospel, the hope that Jesus brings. So it challenges me to own my mess. It also challenges me to embrace my blindness, and it gives me hope. It's those who are blind and know it to some degree or another that find renewal. There's two giving of sight stories I mentioned, this one here. And what I love about this, this blind guy here is that it's this odd healing where he touches, has to do kind of a double dose, and commentators speculate over why, who didn't have enough faith, all those sorts of things. But what strikes me is this guy who had been blind could have said, you know, great, I can see, and off he goes. I think it was Tim Keller that said he would have spent the rest of his life hugging trees and chopping down people. Uh, but he, he didn't. And, you know, maybe that's reading something into it, but nonetheless, he, there's, there's, you, the indication seems to me that he knew it wasn't quite there. And that's where renewal comes from. And then you look at Bartimus in chapter 10. I read uh, at least twice that uh, scholars consider him to be the ideal disciple because he's on the street corner. He knows he's blind. This guy was brought to Jesus by friends. Who knows what he thought, but it wasn't him crying out to be, uh, to be healed. It wasn't him saying, I'm blind, I need to see. He may have been, but it was his friends. Bartimaeus is crying out to the Son of Man. I don't think you read a whole lot in the gospel record of others seeing Jesus as the Son of Man. He knew, he pleaded, and Jesus healed him. Jesus healed him. I like to think where I am now at almost 65 that I'm Bartimaeus because now I see clearly. Back then, yeah, I was kind of dumb. I'd made a lot of mistakes. I thought I knew. But really, I think we ought to recognize that we're more like this half-healed blind guy. We think we see clearly. We think we know fully. And we build our faith, many of us, on that assumption Our comfort and security with God is grounded in my clarity, grounded in my certitude. Not the character of God displayed on the cross, revealed on the cross. Paul says, we see through the glass dimly. We know in part. Imagine how different our world would be if we owned that. If we said, this is what I believe, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Seems as though it's blind Bartim, it's this man here that better reflects who we are. Brian McLaren says that only doubt will save the world, and I think that's what he has in view. It's the entrenched views where we dig in and we fight to hold what we think and believe to be true. Rather say, no, maybe I don't have it all. Maybe I need to take a little of that edge off. But most of all, what this passage challenges me to do is to fixate on Jesus, to fixate on Jesus. There's a, I, I heard this, and it's been long enough that I can't remember where I heard it. Maybe it was a sermon. Maybe somebody told me. But I heard about a counselor who was dealing with a young man who was struggling as an unattached single. 
he was, in his view, and I can't remember how old he supposedly was, but uh, he was old enough that he thought he should have had a spouse. And um, so the counselors and uh, any good Christian counselor was trying to uh, give him hope, uh, talk about the promises of Jesus, the love of Christ, and his response was telling because he said, well, what good is Jesus if I don't have a girlfriend? What good is Jesus if I don't have money to pay my bills? What good is Jesus if I have this lousy job that doesn't seem to really fulfill me? What good is Jesus if my spouse isn't the kind of spouse that I think I really need? We're so fixated on what we think we need, what we don't have, that what we do have is not just minimal, it's nothing, and Jesus is utterly irrelevant. And I think of all the things, as I look at this passage and find a challenge, it comes back to that. We are so fixated on what we need, what we don't have, that Jesus is irrelevant. His intimate presence with us is meaningless and does, seems to do nothing for us. His love for you as you are, his intimate knowledge of you, his love for you as you are, does nothing to stir your soul. We're so fixated on the bread. His character is revealed on the cross. It's just a dry doctrinal statement. It's not the foundation of trust. And this passage pushes me there. The power of the gospel is seen in the disciples and the fact that they are the foundational ministry. It encourages you and I because as Drew liked to say, say, this is a church of misfits. We're all misfits. The disciples set the tone and church leaders down through the centuries doing many great things in the midst of that were a mess as well. We're blinded by our zealousness, ignorance to the power and presence of Jesus, but there's hope for us who are blinded by the bread, whose vision is impaired by our desperate attempt to secure and keep power, position, and control. But there's hope. There's hope. Trust in the one who is with us and recognize that though we see dimly and know in part, we can rest in the foundation of the cross, the foundation of Jesus. You know, it's Father's Day. My father died three or four years ago, and he was, he was an interesting man. He was funny, um, uh, edgy for his time, uh, not particularly reverent, totally um, would not indicate at all that he was a man of faith. He grew up in the Depression, so he was pretty stoic. Uh, he was not your warm, fuzzy sort of guy. He was uh, an interesting guys, I think back, and it was interesting to listen to him as he got later on in life, and uh, particularly how he treated his, uh, my mother. He had a lot of regrets, and he had some regrets in terms of how he was as a father as well. Uh, he didn't have the hope of the gospel or the comfort of Christ. But what's interesting is I think back on dad, there's a lot of dumb stuff he did that I don't remember, but the things that I do remember the things that I do remember, there's two in particular that warm my heart. One I mentioned, I mentioned a lot. I use it as an illustration all the time. He was a private pilot. We were flying, and the door popped open in the airplane. It was a little Cessna. Some people go, oh, no, did you get sucked out? No, I didn't get sucked out. And the little plane, there's not, it's not pressurized. So it wasn't a huge deal, the wind. And, and Dad kind of reached over and put his arm around me, and we flew the rest of the way, whatever trip we were on, with his arm around me. I remember that. I remember that. 
But the other thing I remember, uh, my mom struggled with alcohol, and she went through some, it was, it was not uh, abusive, but it was just, it was tough. And some of you who have had experience with people struggling with alcoholism know. And, but mom and dad were very much a team, and I remember being so upset with my mom who was in college, and I remember feeling just frustrated, I couldn't get anywhere, and dad came into the kitchen, he put his arm around me, he said, I know, I know, it's tough, it's tough. And it's funny, of all the things, it's that, it's his presence. He didn't fix anything in either case. He didn't do anything necessarily to make all the struggles go away. Alcoholism isn't fixed that easily. But he was there. He was there physically. He was there emotionally. He was there for me. And that's what Jesus brings. The cross of Jesus Christ promises us God's love for us, his presence with us. Jesus gave us a spirit that lives and dwells intimately with us. We tend to want to focus on the bread. We never even consider that there's comfort, there's joy and peace in the presence of Christ with us. So as you reflect on stuff and stuff comes up and you have your regrets, you have your things that you look at in the past, look at the disciples and go, yeah, boy, I don't think I was that bad. And maybe we were. But ultimately, he needs to point us to Jesus and that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to build the church to accomplish what was done with misfits and mess-ups like those 12 and give us hope when we're blinded by the bread and our vision is distorted by the leavening impact of the influence of the mentality of the, of the Pharisees and Herod. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful that at the heart of the gospel, it's your presence with us that brings us comfort. We're too easily distracted and find our comfort in things that you provide for us rather than in your presence itself and in your deep love for us. And we would pray that through worship, uh, through the ministry of the word, through your spirit's work, that increasingly your love and grace and mercy would grip our hearts deeply that the cross would be the foundation of our faith, the foundation because it points to the character of one who loves deeply, who knows us fully, loves us and accepts us just as we are, forgiving our sins on the cross. So may our hope rest in that. May you encourage us and may we look to Jesus. May we be fixated on Jesus in the midst of those challenges when things around us are falling apart, when the bread isn't there when we're tempted to uh, be taken in by the allure of power, position, and control. Grip our hearts, we pray. Transform us by your grace and mercy, we ask, so that our hope might rest firmly and soundly in the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.